it was, it was back on October 1st of last year that we introduced the book of James, and I, I introduced that book by telling the story of a, of a rather arrogant tourist who uh, his tour group visited some ancient village, and there was this old man sitting outside an ancient village, and uh, that tourist sarcastically asked the old man, hey, were any great men ever born in your village? Do you remember the old man's answer? He said, nope, only babies. And that's witty in the truth it contains, because there's never been a great man nor a successful woman ever born. The only thing that's ever been born is a helpless baby. And what he or she becomes always remains to be seen. The same is true for anyone who's ever been born again, as Jesus said it. There's no such thing as a person who comes to understand their need for a Savior, comes to understand that Jesus is that Savior, place his or her trust in Christ, and immediately, bammo, that person is like good at all this Christianity stuff. They're mature. They are sanctified fully. They've got all their questions answered. Their bad habits are solved. That's not the way this works. What we become as Christians always remains to be seen. But make no mistake, we are supposed to be growing, maturing, becoming more and more like the one who saved us. This book of James that we've been studying is about that growth process. This is one place, the book of James in the Bible, that shoots holes in attitudes or ideas that, that feel like, you know, I've already believed in Jesus. I've sort of got my ticket to eternal life. So the way I behave down here doesn't matter. I, I am free now to try and get whatever I want in this world because I know I already have what I want in the next one. The book of James lights that idea on fire. It reminds us how unwise that is, that chasing what I want in this world actually won't give me what it is I truly want. It leads to pain, regret, heartache. But man, the stuff James has taught us about growing as Christians has been painful it's sharp, it's pointed, and it kind of hurts, correct? I said in an earlier sermon, but it's still true. If you can read the book of James and not be offended by parts of it, if you can read the book of James and not feel like, man, ouch, I wish you would stop talking about me up there. If you can read the book of James and not have thoughts like that, you either have a problem reading or you have a problem being honest with yourself. But I don't want you to feel beaten down by the book of James. We shouldn't. It's just that what God does to grow us often hurts. You may have been able to tell while we've been studying James that I've been reading Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis again. Brett and I have been going through that slowly. That's why we've had so many C.S. Lewis quotes recently. Great book, by the way. Five out of five recommend. Uh, we haven't gotten to this quote I'm going to show you yet this time through, but we'll get there. In this chapter about God's desire to perfect us, to grow us, C.S. Lewis talks about how God's plan to grow us isn't ever what we think. Like it's a bigger plan than what we bargain for. He writes it this way. He says, if I can turn my clicker on, click on that screen one time there, Seth. There you go. That should work. Maybe. Oh, hey, you're watching something called user error, kids. There we go. My fault. 
Here's C.S. Lewis. He says about growth. Let me explain. When I was a child, I often had toothaches. And I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me get to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least not till the pain became very bad. And the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist the next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. He continues, and I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth which had not yet begun to ache. They would not let sleeping dogs lie. If you give them an inch, they took a mile. Now, if I may put it that way, our Lord is like the dentists. If you give him an inch, he will take a mile. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of some one particular sin which they're ashamed of or which is obviously spoiling daily life. Well, he will cure it all right, but he will not stop there. That may be all you asked, but once you call him in, he will give you the full treatment. That's what the book of James is like. The full treatment. Four months ago, I asked you if, if you wanted to grow in this faith, if you were ready to grow in this faith of ours, and most of us nodded, yes. But we didn't know that James was hiding the pick and the drill behind his back. And he was all out of Novocaine. We didn't know how much growth might hurt. But as we end this book, I don't want you to feel beaten down by it. It's not what's happening. We're not beaten down. We're in process. As Christians, we are saved by the Word of God, but then we are exposed by the Word of God. We go to the Lord to fix our greatest problem, but He doesn't stop there. There's more work to be done. We always have to keep in mind there's a very real difference between what God has already done for us and what God is doing in us. They're related, but they're different. It's been a while since we looked at this slide, this illustration from Lincoln Berean that originally was in their Galatians study. What God has done for you, if, if you have come to believe that Jesus Christ died under the penalty your sins deserve, if He absorbed the wrath of God that should be aimed at you, if you believe that, accept that trust in Christ for eternal life, what happens immediately is you receive like positionally, legally before God, the perfection, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It never increases, it never decreases. Your behavior cannot do anything to the righteousness of Jesus. We hold that before God. That, that line of righteousness should be infinitely high in the air. And when you believe in Jesus and you are justified, it just means you are you're slathered all over with his perfection and that's what God judges you by to determine whether or not you're good enough for eternal life. He has already done that. It's over. But we live down here where our condition does not match our position. This is where the book of James takes place. We weren't supposed to read it to tell whether or not we're going to heaven based on how we're doing on these things. It's about believing that what God says is best is best. Believing it so much it begins to shape how I behave, how I live. 
And gradually, the more that happens, my, my life, my condition begins to more and more match my position. Now, the weaknesses of that illustration is that first, the righteousness of Jesus should be infinitely high in the air. Our line should probably never get that close. And also, the line should not be straight at all. It should, it should have all kinds of ups and downs and pitfalls and crocodile moats we somehow have to cross and who knows what all else. Because it's a struggle. But we should be generally trending upward. We should be growing. And that's what James wants to talk to us about, and, or has been talking to us about. And that growth never ends until the day when Jesus glorifies us, perfects us, makes us like He is. That's what we've been studying in James. Let's see first how James concludes. We just have two verses left in this little book. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Let's read those together now. My brethren, James writes, if any of you, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And that's how the book ends. It's one of those endings that leaves us looking for more. We, it can seem like James just like got tired of writing. It doesn't seem like he parked the car, like he just stopped in the middle of the street and got out. We turned the page looking, but this, this, is, a, this is an effective conclusion to what James has written. Here's why. If James has been doing anything in this book, he's been doing this. He's been trying to point out how his audience strays from the truth and he's been trying to encourage his audience to turn back toward the truth. Hasn't he been doing that? That's a good summary of what the book of James is for. But James does something else here at the end. He's been doing that for five chapters. But notice, now he sort of hands the baton to his reader. He says, I've been trying to show you where you've strayed from the truth, encouraging you to turn back. But now he says, when your friend, when someone else in your congregation, when your spouse, when your child, when your parent, when, your, when someone you know well strays from the truth, you be the one to go encourage them to turn back toward the truth. And this is, that's really instructive that James says it the way he says it. Because I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, now you take this, this book that I've given you and you go get really good at behaving the way I have described. And when you get to a certain level of goodness, then you can go help someone else turn toward the truth. James knew. He, was, he knew his audience. He knew the stuff he wrote was going to hurt. And he knew the people he was writing to were failing at the things he was writing. And that's the people he says are qualified to go help someone else. Isn't that interesting? When we get this baton from James... All we are is people who stray from the truth, who should be willing to go help other people who stray from the truth. We are people who need help and need to grow, willing to help other people who need help and need to grow. In fact, if, if, if that's not our attitude, if you ever get to the point where you think you're nailing all this stuff and you're, you're, you're fully sanctified, I would say that's when you become disqualified from being someone like this. 
Because nothing, uh, nothing hinders the repentance of someone you are confronting like the self-righteousness of the person suggesting the repentance. It is the humility of one sinner to another that's effective. And what do we do? What are we trying to accomplish if you come to me and say, Matt, this is hard, but I want to have a difficult conversation about something that I see. Or if I come to you and do the same, what is it we're trying to accomplish? Look, anytime someone from among you turns from the air of his ways, you're going to save his soul from death. You're going to cover a multitude of sins. Someone from among you is important. Do you know, it's not just unbelievers, pagans, non-Christians who need converted sometimes. It's not just the non-believer who needs saved sometimes. We all need saved all the time. Now, you and I, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we don't need saved in the same way an unbeliever needs saved. Right? If we go back to this, salvation is accomplished, justification is over. I bear the righteousness of Jesus Christ today, tomorrow, and forever. But, so I don't need saved. If you're a Christian, you don't need saved from hell. You don't need saved from the wrath of God. But I need saved from my bad ideas. You need saved from bad habits. We need saved from bad responses, bad ideas. And when we turn from those things, some wonderful stuff happens. First, that does save my soul from death. Not eternal death, that's already done. But that soul, the Greek word here is suke, the, the original audience would have just understood this as your life. Every time we repent and go back toward the truth, my life is saved from the stuff of death. Sin still lets the stuff of death seep into my life that causes separation and pain and hurt and regret and all kinds of stuff that's the stuff of, of death. And when I turn from the error of my ways, it covers all kinds of sin, a multitude of sins. Even that sin you're thinking you could never get away from. And that's how James concludes his book. By handing us, you and I, the ones that read this book and think, man, I have so much work to do. I'm so not like what James describes. James says, exactly. Now get out there and help one another. Turn back toward the truth. And I thought it would be helpful if we're holding the baton of the book of James before we close the cover on this book completely, we should remind ourselves, just maybe in general, the content of this baton we've been handed. So I'm going to try to summarize the book of James, I, which it's all awesome, it's all wonderful. So if I leave out your favorite part, I guess get over it. What are we going to do? I don't know. What has James taught us? First, James taught us, chapter 1, verse 22, be doers of the word. Not hearers only. If you're just a hearer of the word, you're going to deceive yourself. Let me give you a truth. If you only write down or only remember one thing from today's passage, make it be this. Write this down. You ready? Obeying God is always better than disobeying God. And don't laugh. Because that seems obvious or too simplistic. Because how many problems do we cause ourselves, our families, our church, our community, our places of work? How many problems do we cause 
as Christians because even though I know, I've been told, I have heard the difference between right and wrong, I deceive myself into thinking in this situation there's something better I can do than what God has said is the obedient thing to do. Be doers of the word. There are all, there's about 60 commands in this little book. 12 a chapter, if you're doing the math, on average. And obedience is important to James because he's told us faith without works, without obedience, is dead. It's necrotic. It gets, it's worthless to help us in this Christian maturity discipleship process. Obedience is vital if we're going to grow in this thing. Be doers of the word. If you're a hearer only, you're deceiving yourself somehow. You're deceiving yourself that it doesn't matter. You're deceiving yourself that in this situation it's probably best. You're deceiving yourself that it's wise. Be a doer of the word. Now, why is that important? I mean, if I'm saved for all of eternity, if I'm already justified, then what does it matter ultimately? Why can't I just try to to get the best out of this life down here, even if it doesn't look like obedience? Well, James gave us two main reasons. Two main reasons we have time for this morning why it's important to be a doer of the word. One is sort of, uh, sort of theoretical, theological, and one's more practical. Why is it important to be a doer of the word? First, because friendship with the world is hostility toward God, James said. Here's the way he taught this. In chapter 4, James began to teach us, he said, I know why you fight I know why you quarrel. I know why you yell and scream and bite. He said, because you don't get what you want. You have this, this, this war going on inside of you. You are not getting what you want. And so, instead of trying to seek how God wants to give you what you actually want, you decide to try to get it yourself apart from what is obedience. You know, the desires underneath your desires are all desires for God. I know what you want. You want to be accepted. You want to be loved. You want to be valuable. You want peace. You want contentment. You want joy. Those things come from the Father. They come from above. But when we don't feel like that because of our situations, because of our circumstances, instead of seeking how God wants to give us those things, we look out there and think, I want to feel how I want to feel and I want to get it myself this other way. And that's when James said, that's like adultery. In chapter 4. That's when he said friendship with the world is hostility with God. You're trying to get what God promises to give you. Not from God, but by, from stuff he created. It's like adultery. God, as our God, as our creator and as our savior. Because of the, the awesome price he paid to buy us. To redeem us. He has exclusive rights to be the deliverer of the desires of our hearts. And when we try to get that apart from him, James said it's like adultery. In the same way, God has said that Rachel has exclusive rights to me in some ways. And if I am trying to get some of my wants and desires and needs fulfilled from another woman, you all would tell me I was wrong. That friendship with that woman is adultery toward, is hostility toward Rachel. And you'd be right. 
but be a doer of the word because clinging to obedience to him, trying only to have him fulfill my greatest needs is the only way that keeps me from adulterously trying to get a shortcut toward what he promises to give. Be a doer of the word. Why? Because friendship with the world is hostility toward God. The other major reason James teaches us to be doers of the word is because it really is the wisest way to live. This is the practical one. It really is the wisest way to live. James wrote a lot about wisdom in this book. He told us that real wisdom comes from God and there's this other kind of fake wisdom that the world calls wisdom that's not wisdom at all. And he described for us what real wisdom looks like. And real wisdom always looks, 317, peaceful. At first, it's pure. It's pure in its devotion to the Father. And real wisdom is always peaceful. It's gentle. It's, it's reasonable or accommodating. That's what wisdom looks like. Now, the, the, the foundation of James's teaching on wisdom came in chapter 1. When we were studying chapter 1, we defined wisdom this way. What we're talking about in wisdom, wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and the highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. That's how we designed or defined wisdom. And real wisdom, it'll look peaceful. It'll look gentle. It'll be accommodating. It doesn't accommodate sin, but it accommodates sinners, people. And that's what God gives when we ask for wisdom. He gives only the power to see and the inclination to choose what is really best. And you know what it will always be? Being a doer of the word. It will always look like obedience. Always. But man, it is hard in the heat of the moment to believe that's true. It is so easy to pursue things that I think will work better than obedience. It's so, yes, I know what the Bible says, but in this situation, if I do obedience, it won't work. Work for what? To get me what I want, to make me feel how I want to feel. And God says, I am the one who gives you what you really want you don't even know what you really want. When we ask for wisdom, God will give it, but it always looks like being a doer of the word. And someday, for all of eternity, we will always be happy where we were a doer of the word, and we will regret where we weren't. Instead of, there is no such thing as better And when we get twisted about this, James taught taught us that's what makes us unstable. You know, instability in my life is not caused by my circumstances. Instability in my life is caused when I have a failure of wisdom and I think there's a better way to get what I want than obedience to God. That makes me a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. For a while, I I press in toward God. But then, you know, that's not working to make me feel right now how I want to feel. So I see something else out here. I chase that for a while till that burns down or that doesn't work. And that doesn't make me feel. And I have regret and I have shame and I have hurt myself and others. And so I run back toward God. And that's what makes me unstable, crashing back and forth. Be a doer of the word. Why? Because it really is the wisest way to live. So James has taught us, be a doer of the word. Why? Well, because friendship with the world is hostility to God. 
Second, it is the wisest way to live, and everything else James writes could be classified under the heading of what will it look like if I'm a doer of the word. I only have time for for three of these. But what would it look like if I'm doing the word? First, being being a doer of the word will show up probably most clearly during trials, during pain, during suffering. James taught that being a doer of the word changes the way I view trials and difficulties that I will face in life. In chapter 1, isn't this how James started the book? And keep in mind, James was writing to people who have it worse than you. He was not writing, people, writing to people who are having like JV problems in their life. He was writing to people who have lost their homes, their hometowns. They've been disowned by their family. They've been beaten. And they're on the run for their very lives. That's who James said, consider it all joy when you're going through stuff like this. What? Listen, what God uses to grow you hurts. As Christians, what we're waiting on, this was chapter 5, what we're waiting on to fix what's wrong is we're not waiting on God to fix what we're in right now. What we're waiting on is the return of the Lord. Because someday he's going to fix things in a way. He's not going to give me what I want. He's going to give me more than I have the capacity to want. And that's what I'm actually waiting on. That day when I'm with him. And the stability in my life comes not figuring out how to make him fix what's wrong. It comes from me clinging to the one who's going to. It's this Christianity thing is not figuring out how to behave in a way where God fixes everything and changes the things for the the way I want them changed. It's I cling to the one who doesn't move while the pain throbs. And it doesn't get better. But knowing that it will. Being a doer of the word during, during trials comes from the understanding that there's nothing in this world I can chase that's going to fix everything. It doesn't work. It's like grabbing oil in your hand. If I don't keep my eyes and my heart focused on clinging to Him, I will spend my life thinking of something that has to change for me to feel like I want to feel. Something that has to happen for me to have peace, joy, contentment, those things we really want. I'll spend my life chasing it and either I will never get it or I will get it and I will realize it won't hold the feeling that I want to feel. It'll just be replaced by something else I see that I have to have to feel how I want to feel. This faith trains us to understand we have all we need. But it ain't here. Not yet. Be a doer of the word. It's the wisest way to live. It shows up clearest probably during trials. Being a doer of the word also, James taught us, shows up in our words. James talked a lot. He wrote a lot in this little book about our words, the way we talk, our tongues. James said when we are doers of the word, a a doer of the word is someone who's quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. A doer of the word understands that the anger of man never accomplishes the righteousness of of God. 
A doer of the word listens more than he talks, understands more than he explains, and does not try to control his or her surrounding with angry words. A doer of the word is someone who understands they can't tame their own tongue. It's impossible. Well, then what's this doing here? Because I can't grip my teeth and make my tongue behave. The only thing I can do is when those words come out of my mouth that show I'm not being a doer of the word, I take my heart and expose it to the Lord so that he can clean out what is in my heart that's causing the words. Because the reality is, when you hear the angry, bitter, mean words come out of my mouth, it is not the fault of who I aim them at. The problem is in my heart. When I'm a doer of the word, it will show up in my words. And finally, James taught us that a doer of the word keeps looking in the mirror that is the word. I'm going to read this one from chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. For if someone merely listens to the message and does not live it out, he's like someone who gazes at his own face in a mirror. For he gazes at himself and then goes out and immediately forgets what sort of person he was. But the one who peers into the perfect law of liberty and fixes his attention there and does not become a forgetful listener, but one who lives it out, that is the person who will be blessed in what he does. If you are a Christian, if you, are, if you have trusted in Christ and what he did at the cross for you... If you did that, you necessarily had to come to a point where you had to understand first this truth. There's something wrong with me. I, there's things I need saved from. Becoming a Christian is not deciding, I think I'd rather live in heaven forever than live in hell forever. Door number A, not door number B, which is not a number, is it? But you get the point. Becoming a Christian starts with this. I, if I stand before God, He's not going to ask me, where would you rather live? He's going to ask me, are you righteous? And I can't say yes. Right? We have to get there based on righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. So becoming a Christian is understanding there's something wrong with me. There's things wrong with me that I need saved from. But once I become a Christian, I still need saved from those things. Those things that I recognized as a, that were a problem, if I've still got them, they're still, you know, a problem. They're not just a problem the second after I die. They're a problem now. James said, not understanding your sin is a problem is like someone who goes and looks in the mirror and sees they're a wreck. They got stuff coming out of their nose. They, their, their comb-overs all hanging down like this. That person would never just say, yeah, it's a problem, and then leave and not fix the problems. That's the Christian who's not a doer of the word. That, that, is, that is the Christian who's decided, you know what, I think I'm good. After an encounter with the Lord where I admitted at first, I'm not good. Well, which is it? Are you good or not? And if the answer is I'm not, then James says we keep staring into, we keep gazing into what he calls the perfect law of liberty. Paul called this freedom in Christ. The truth, the freedom, liberty, same word. The truth is there is not freedom in me being free to try to get whatever I want. That's bondage. It doesn't work. Real freedom comes in knowing the right master. And here's how he shows us what needs to change for our own good. Because he loves us. You know, there is, there's a huge difference 
between understanding I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. I know all have sinned. There's a huge difference between that and actually recognizing sins as problems and admitting the problem I find and working to fix it. A doer of the word looks in the mirror, calls problems problems, and asks help from, the, from his God and from his brothers and sisters because he wants to fix the problems that are problems. So as we close the cover on this great little book, let me just ask you, how's your growing going? Are you in this thing? Have you jumped in the deep end? You, you will never be done. We, we can never look in the past and say, see what I changed, I'm good. Keep looking in the mirror God exposes. And it hurts, but it saves. And it rescues. And it heals. And the best that we can hope for is to just agree with something else we looked at very early in this book. The author of uh, Amazing Grace, John Newton, he said, I am not what I might be. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be. But thank God I'm not what I once was. And I can say with the great apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That is the Christian life. And the weakness is, if we could draw a line right here, either ignoring the top half or the bottom half. If I'm honest, I can't say, I, I don't have a heart attitude that says, I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be. Right? We kind of feel like we've arrived. Look at what I've changed. So we have that weakness. Or we can't look backward and say, thank God I'm not what I once was. We haven't changed anything. The Christian life is on the top half and the bottom half. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be. I'm not what I might be. But I'm not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray and let's go to the table together. Our Father, we are so grateful for what you have done for us that cannot be undone. For those of us who believed in Jesus Christ, for tr who have trusted for him for salvation, and there is salvation in no other name. Thank you for what you did at that moment. You justified us. You perfected us legally, positionally. But our condition is a process. Father, forgive us where we take little issues to you and ask you to fix those, especially when those issues are in someone else. And for not just relenting and letting you do the whole orthodontic package. Father, we do, we want to grow. We want to help one another grow. Help us be people who need help, helping people who need help. To that end, help us be doers of the word. We know it's the wisest way to live. We know not being obedient is adultery toward you. And help our growth to be apparent next time the trial starts. Be evident in our words. And God, just that we'll never be in this life what we wish to be. Help us to be able to look backward and say, I'm not what I used to be and what I am. I am by the grace of the one who saved me. In his name we pray. Amen. This morning as we come to the table, and if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what we pass out here, we, we invite you to, to join with us. 
But I want to, I want to look forward with you at the table this morning. You know, Jesus promised his disciples that night, hey, I'm not going to do this with you again until I drink this with you in the kingdom. So we're going to look forward this morning because of what God has already done. We've talked so much about what he is doing in us and our Christian growth and how hard that is. But man, being rescued by Jesus Christ ain't hard for us. <laughs> it was so hard for him. And the Apostle Paul, while the, while the bread comes around, I want us to meditate on these words. The Apostle Paul of the Philippians wrote, um, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He has started a process in you that he's working, that he's forming, that he's shaping you. And one day, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he's going to perfect you. And at this table, he promised that day. Father, as the as the guys come forward and the bread comes around, we look forward to the time when we will meet you, be glorified by you, and spend eternity in uh, rejoicing in your grace. Bless our time with the bread in his name. Amen. It is true that God has begun a work in those of us who believe in what this bread represents. But to begin that work, an incredibly high price was paid. The one who had never sinned, the one who was good enough, allowed himself to be tortured under the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. So as we look forward to the completion of this process, we must also look backward at what began it. The night he was betrayed, Jesus broke bread. He handed it to his disciples saying, this is my body. It was broken for you. And he invited us to do, to remember him while we do this. In the book of James, James told us as Christians to, to remember what it is we're looking forward to. We're not looking for God mainly to fix what's wrong right now. We're looking for God to fix everything like only he can. In the closing chapters of the Bible, the Apostle John shares from the vision and he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That is what we're looking forward to. That is the fix we cling to. In the meantime, we still need the one to fix what's wrong with us. 
We're not done. So we look forward and we look inward. Father, as the, as the cup comes around, we look forward to when you dry all our tears. In the meantime, will you help us look inward that we might cause fewer of those tears to ourselves and our loved ones? May we be in the process while we look forward to its completion. In Christ's name, amen. night after supper, Jesus took the cup, blessed it. Uh, He called it the blood of the covenant by which there's forgiveness of sins. There is no process without the price. The price was high, the blood of God, but the price was enough, the blood of God. He asked us to remember him while we do this. Amen. Come back next week. We'll, we'll go into the Old Testament and follow Elijah around for a while. Uh, I'm enjoying it as I study that ahead of time. See you next week.